0: Every so often, we have the Olympics, you know, every two years with the summer and winter alternating schedule and all of that. Uh, but every year, the Olympics start with the opening ceremonies. And I don't know about you, but, you know, the opening ceremonies are kind of this odd thing, right? It's, it's this interesting event where you have... Uh, the, the host nation basically trying to, you know, put their their fingerprints on the celebration of the Olympics. And so they kind of present their cultural background in some kind of artistic form, and there's all this kind of ridiculous imagery. And if you're, if you're artistic, sometimes you appreciate all that. If you're not, you're going, can we get to the snowboarding? Like, when does that actually happen? You know, like, it's just kind of in the way. Um, but yeah, I think over over the years, I've grown to appreciate the opening ceremonies, if only because often they do set the tone for the games in one way or another. And kind of they introduce some maybe important themes that are going to play out over the course of the games. And we can debate which are our favorite uh, opening ceremonies and which were, you know, the, the most entertaining or the most effective or whatever. But those opening ceremonies, again, they set the tone for the games. They kind of, you know, put you looking in the right direction and, and introduce some of those themes. In some ways... The baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist is like the opening ceremony for Jesus' ministry as the Messiah. At the beginning of Matthew, we were introduced to Jesus as the the promised deliverer from the Old Testament, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the genealogy there in Matthew says this is who Jesus is. He is the one that that Israel has been waiting for. And the narrative about Jesus' birth points out uh, the significant ways that his birth fulfills Old Testament Scripture, right? Even his survival as an infant fulfills Old Testament Scripture, that Jesus is this expected one. And last week we saw with John the Baptizer how... When John announces the arrival of the Messiah, he does so as, as fulfillment of, again, that Old Testament expectation. And the call to repent is not a new call. It's a call that's consistent with the message of the Old Testament. But we haven't actually gotten going yet. And so here in our passage this morning in Matthew three thirteen to 17, we find the baptism of Jesus, which essentially launches his messianic ministry. As it does so, it introduces some important themes Right about and, and basically gives us a sneak preview about some things that are going to be significant in his ministry. It sets the tone for his ministry. Now, as you and I come to this passage, we come to this passage as likely believers in Jesus who are excited to follow and to grow as believers, but at the same time, we are facing challenges, difficulties in our lives. Uh, we prayed for those facing health struggles. We have a lot of that in our church right now. Some of us are facing financial difficulties. Some of us are having struggles in our families or with friends, job troubles, issues at school. And so we come to this kind of opening ceremony passage with Jesus being baptized, and we might just think, you know what, can we get to the, the real stuff? You know, can we get to the action? But there's important truth preserved for us in this narrative. We need to ask, why was Jesus baptized, and why should I care that Jesus was baptized? What's the point? And as we look at just these few verses this morning, we'll see that there's there's actually gospel-rooted, right? Gospel-rooted reasoning for Jesus to be baptized by John the Baptist. And as we think about that, we'll see how it should impact our lives. I don't know exactly where you might be struggling this morning But I know that this narrative is intended by God to help you and to bless you as you are a follower of Jesus. So let's unpack some of the details here and figure out why we should care about Jesus' baptism. So we pick it up in verse 13. And there we read, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And I know what you're thinking this morning. You're thinking this is the perfect verse for a map and you would you would be right you would be right let 's uh let 's just set the tone here and uh You know, sometimes we put the map up because it's helpful to us to understand the narrative, and sometimes we put it up just because it's my thing, right? So I don't know which it is this morning, but you can figure it out. Uh, Here's Nazareth. So this is where Jesus uh, grew up and where he lived. He will later move with the disciples, his headquarters for ministry, to Capernaum up here. But this is where he spends most most of his time, the region of Galilee. John the Baptizer is doing his work down here in the Jordan River uh, within striking distance of Jerusalem and uh, the, the book of the of the, the tribal territory of Judah and Benjamin, so he 's down here doing that, so for Jesus to come down to john it, it 's a long trip okay it 's not like oh, you just you're down the street right so he intentionally chose to make this journey, treks down the Jordan Rift Valley, comes, and catches up with John. Apparently, word had spread about what was going on that John the Baptizer was functioning like an Old Testament prophet, and that he 's preaching this message that the kingdom of heaven is come near. And the Messiah is coming, and so you need to repent of your sin, and you need to to turn to the Lord. And so that message is gaining popularity, perhaps. Word spread. Jesus is the cousin of John the baptizer. He hears the message, and he travels down and meets him down uh, at the Jordan to be baptized for him. Now, I want to circle back to verse 13 with you, and just look at that the end of the verse. So Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Jesus went with the intention, with the purpose of being baptized. He didn't go out of curiosity just to see what was going on. He went went to intentionally submit himself to the ministry of the forerunner and to be baptized. So it wasn't accidental. It wasn't an afterthought. It was Jesus' purpose in going down to visit John, which I think is important. It, It indicates to us that it wasn't just chance. It wasn't just random that Jesus intended for this to happen. So he shows up, and by the way, this event is recorded for us in all four Gospels in one way or another. And in the Gospel of John, you know, we find out John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? And so it's obviously a significant moment when John sees Jesus, and, you know, the crowd's, Oh, what's going on? And, and they're anticipating the arrival of the Messiah because John is announcing that, you know, and here he is, right? But then something really weird happens in verse 14, Note verse 14 there in your Bible. So Jesus has come to be baptized, but John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? It's not hard to imagine. John's role is to be the forerunner, the herald, the announcer of the Messiah. So here Jesus arrives, John knows that Jesus is the Messiah by the Holy Spirit confirming that in him, and that's his job, that's his role, right? And so here's, Jesus shows up, and John says, okay, he's here, and then Jesus just gets in line to be baptized, and John's going wait a minute that's there's a hierarchy issue remember last week in verse 11 John made a big deal I'm not worthy to untie his sandals i mean he's the one that ranks higher than me and so John's like you're getting in line you have a fast pass like you don't have to you don't have to stand in line like this whole thing is wrong in fact John says I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. Remember last week, John said he would baptize by the Spirit and with fire. John's like, this is backwards. This is not how it's supposed to go down. He's recognizing Jesus's authority. He's recognizing Jesus's role as the Messiah. He's humbling himself under the authority of Jesus the Messiah, which is right and good. So he says, this is wrong. I I shouldn't be baptizing you. In fact, The pronouns are emphatic in John's statement, and yet you come to be baptized by me? Like, no way. This is totally backwards. In fact, maybe John recognized, and we don't know this for sure, but as we know uh, from the rest of the Scripture, this is obviously a part of the equation, that what he was preaching was a message of repentance. And I really appreciated how Pastor Adam explained that last week. But repentance is that turning from sin. And maybe John knew that Jesus was the rescuer from sin. He didn't struggle with sin himself. We don't know how much John knew about the nature of Jesus as the word who'd become flesh. But maybe there was a disconnect there. Like, you don't need to repent of your sin. So This isn't, it's, it's backwards. But notice verse 15. Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. A couple things happen there in Jesus' response. Notice in verse 15. Again, first, Jesus does acknowledge his authority. He says, it's okay, John. We can allow it for now. So Jesus gives John permission to baptize him. He says, it's okay. You can do that. All right, let's, let's do it. But when he says for now, he's acknowledging Listen, I understand that in the long run, it might, this might, or in the short run, this might look weird. But in the long run, there's something bigger going on here, John. So just for the moment, let me do this thing. Let me let you baptize me. And then you'll understand. And then he says, by doing this, John, you and I, we will fulfill all righteousness. Now, th- this is interesting because what he says will fulfill all righteousness. He's not just talking about doing what was right in that moment. That word righteousness here seems to be loaded with saving significance, that this plan of God to redeem sinners, the the righteous work of the Messiah and rescuing you and me, that all of this is is launching right here at this moment with the the baptism of Jesus. And so Jesus in one sense says, John, we're going to do this because this is the first step. This is the start of the actual rescue part of the mission. And so we're going we're gonna to fulfill all righteousness. We're going to launch this mission proper by me submitting to the, the act of baptism. What we have to ask this morning is, why, does that, why is that the case? And so I, I think there are three reasons that are laid out here in Matthew uh, as to why Jesus was baptized. And as we unpack them, we'll ask about the significance for us. The first is, Jesus was baptized to show his agreement with John's message. His agreement with John's message. As Jesus comes to John, his his submission to the, the act of baptism is saying, yes, I agree. Did Jesus agree that the kingdom of heaven had come near? Yes, he brought the kingdom of heaven near. Like he's the gatekeeper. So he's like, yes, I agree with that message. Did Jesus agree that sinners should repent in light of the arrival of his kingdom and respond in faith and repentance? Yes, of course Jesus agreed with that. So Jesus, as he comes down, he's, he wants to make sure, this is important, right? He wants to make sure that, that the crowd, the Pharisees, like the general population, that they saw that he is not competing with John the Baptist. He's not, uh, his mission isn't different or separate from the mission of John the Baptizer. No, that Jesus and John are on the same team, proclaiming the same kingdom, doing this same work, right? It's just that John is the opening act. And Jesus is the headliner, if I could say it that way, right? So Jesus was baptized to show his agreement with John's message. It's not two separate kingdoms. It's not two separate agendas. What can we learn from that? Well, I think daily we struggle with multiple allegiances as far as kingdoms and agendas, Recently, uh, you know, they they had the World Cup, and I was listening to a podcast, uh, you know, one commentator analyzing the World Cup, and this is an interesting uh, commentator because uh, she was from England, you know, raised in England, British accent, the whole thing, but then has since moved to the United States, works in, in media in the United States. Her children were born in the United States, so she has this, like, dual allegiance, right? Well, I don't know if you knew in the World Cup, but in the World Cup, England and the United States had to play each other. So it was like, at a, you know, so she's analyzing and kind of, you know, showing, you know, commentating on this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, she couldn't have an allegiance to both kingdoms, like, there was a point that she had to choose. Like, where is my allegiance? And she picked England. Okay, so there, there it is. Uh, and and we, whatever. It is what it is. But I thought of that in relation to this moment. Because as Jesus submits to baptism, he's saying it's not two kingdoms here. We're talking about one kingdom. It's, it's the kingdom of God. It's that agenda that matters. And so Jesus wants to communicate to everyone, this is the mission. This is the mission, This is the train. You get on this train. There's no other train. There's no other kingdom that you can have an allegiance to. You have to surrender that kingdom. You have to surrender that agenda and get on board with what John is proclaiming, which Jesus says, I will fulfill. I'm going to actually get this done. So there's, I think, a recognition here that there's not two separate kingdoms. And we have to ask, well, hold on. Am I interested in the kingdom of God or am I daily consumed with my kingdom? my agenda, my show. And you know, Jesus can fit into my plan. And Jesus is the means by which I'll get what I want, but ultimately it's my priority that matters. It's my kingdom that I am pursuing. Like that World Cup commentator, there's going to be a day you'll have to choose. There's a day, and frankly it's it's basically every day where those two those two agendas, they can't coexist. That we we have to Say, which is it going to be? Which is going to actually win out in my heart? And by by agreeing with John's message and being baptized, Jesus is making clear that, listen, it's not a competing agenda. There's one agenda, but it's the kingdom of God. That's the agenda that we're concerned with. You might just ask the question this morning, where do you need to grow in adopting God's kingdom agenda in your life? God's priorities for your life. Maybe even just bringing up the topic, you already can think of a few areas where you go, yep, I'm not in sync with the Lord on that area of my life. I'm struggling there to trust him. I'm struggling to submit to him, right? And I just want to build my kingdom there. The second reason that Jesus was baptized was to prove that he is qualified as the Messiah. So John the Baptizer basically functions as the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's like the transition prophet. So he's like the one that says, okay, Here, the Messiah has arrived, and then we're on into kind of the New Testament era. So as that last prophet of the Old Testament, Jesus comes not in conflict with him, as we said, but in alignment with him. But when he does so, Jesus comes as basically the one who will fulfill all of those promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So as he does so, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. His job is pretty simple. There he is. (laughs) Like, that's his job. Like, right there, you know? Just point to Jesus. And by by being baptized, Jesus proves, yes, I am what John is talking about. I am the one who brings the kingdom near. I am the one to call you to repentance and faith. And, and as Matthew, as the, the, the narrative unfolds, we'll find out, wow, faith means trusting in Jesus, not only in believing what he teaches, but actually trusting in his death and his resurrection. And all of that is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, which if you haven't figured it out yet, is a big deal for Matthew. Like Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament promises is huge. That's why even singing Christ the true and better, I mean, that's why a song like that is helpful to us. He is the better Adam. He is the better Isaac. He is the better Moses and the better David. Absolutely. He's qualified to be the rescuer, and all the hopes of the Old Testament come to their fulfillment and fruition in him. I wonder this morning, do you realize that all of your hopes ultimately can only be fulfilled in Christ? Sometimes we get passionate about certain things, good things in our lives, but we get passionate and we think, you know what, I'm going to make that happen on my own. I'm going to get to it another way. But as Jesus submits to baptism here under the ministry of John the the Baptizer, he does so proving he is that qualified Messiah. He has the legit credentials. He's the real deal. And if he he didn't participate in that baptism, maybe he would have communicated that he wasn't in line with all those Old Testament promises. And he didn't agree with John or or whatever. But I think there's a, a question here for us to ask do we really realize the degree to which all of our hopes can only come to fruition in Christ? You know, you want your family to, to be at peace. You want your kids to prosper. You want your work to go well. You want to get good grades at school. You want your, your friends to like you. You want to have friends, right? But all that, all that prosperity, all of that success, all that peace that we're, we're seeking after, that contentment, that satisfaction— Eternally, there's only one place to get it. And it's through the ministry of the Messiah. When Jesus is baptized, he proves, yes, I am that Messiah. Finally there, number three, Jesus was baptized to identify with those he would save. Now, this is really important. By being baptized, Jesus is not saying he needed to repent, right? He's not not saying I need to repent. But what he is saying is, I'm going to stand with and identify with those who believe this message and are repenting of their sins. So Jesus says, I'm basically here, I'm going to stand with sinners and identify with them in this baptism. And man, I think that's actually the most significant reason why Jesus was baptized. Because again, he's not admitting to sin, but he's identifying with sinners. In in that first century Middle Eastern culture, you know, shame and status were we're a big part of the equation. And so to repent of sin means to acknowledge like, yeah, I uh, guilt. there's there are shame over my sin, but then there's a turning away from that. Right. And so that, that, that poverty of spirit being poor in spirit that we talked about last week. Well, obviously Jesus doesn't have that shame, but John feels weird, with Jesus even standing next to people who have that shame. And again, status, you know, John felt weird because he's not above Jesus, but by baptizing him, it might seem like he is. And Jesus is like, it's okay. I'll allow it for now. Like, we're going we're gonna move to this, move this program forward, right? But when Jesus stands with the sinners in that moment, he does so saying, I'm not ashamed to stand next to people who agree that my kingdom coming is a good thing and who want to repent of their sins. I stand, I stand with these people. I identify with these people. Notice the contrast, though. Of Jesus's act with the hesitancy of the Pharisees from last week. Did you catch that last week? Uh, the Pharisees—they came down. John was baptizing, and they were like, uh, you know, the religious leaders, uh, important religious leaders of the day. They come down, and they're like investigating, and like they're like there. And John's like, "What are you guys even doing here? Because you know your spirituality is false," is the accusation. He calls them a brood of vipers. You know, you snakes, right? Snakes is not a compliment, in case you didn't know, right? So Jesus, or John, you know, assaults them and says, hey, listen, hold on. This isn't, you're not the real deal. They were hesitant to agree with John. They were hesitant to follow John's message and respond in baptism. And it's almost like Jesus just walks right down and he's like, out of the way, boys. Let me show you how this is done. Let Let me stand with and identify with these people who have humbled themselves, have confessed their need, and who want to see the kingdom of God come. Well, don't you know that identifying with sinners is the heart of the Messiah's mission? It didn't stop here with the baptism. Scandalously, Jesus walked with sinners. Getting to know them, relating to them. Shockingly, Jesus stood and talked with sinners. You might think of that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. Just having that conversation was revolutionary. Jesus sat and ate with sinners. Offending the sensibilities of the so-called religious leaders of the day. Identifying with these sinners and sharing a meal with them. Imparting God's truth to them. And one day, Jesus would hang on a cross for sinners. His identification with sinners here in his baptism is just a little... Foreshadowing of what he would do for us on the cross. That yes, we have guilt and shame. And yes, we don't have the status that we might want. Or certainly that Jesus has. But Jesus, in his messianic mission. He doesn't come to stand over us. And lord his authority over us. And demand submission and obedience. The way he could as God made flesh. But Jesus comes and identifies with us. And he says, I know they're sinners, but if they repent, and if they'll trust in me, I stand with them. In fact, I stand for them. He goes to the cross for us. This identification with sinners in his baptism is, again, that hint, that foreshadowing of what Jesus would do on the cross for us. It's funny, Jesus could have easily just commanded that we obey, but instead he demonstrates his love By being one of us. The incarnation is crazy like that. But the Apostle Paul tells us that it is the demonstration of God's love for us. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a significant struggle with sin that others don't know about. And it's an area where were you to confess it to someone else, you would feel serious shame. It's a dark corner of your life and you don't want others to know. You're embarrassed to even think about it. Can I just encourage you this morning that Jesus was baptized partially to show that he identifies with you. Not that he thinks your sin is okay, no. But to say that he loves you. And that he came to walk alongside you and to stand and talk with you and to sit and eat with you. And ultimately to hang on a cross for that dark, ugly sin that you're hiding. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I just want to encourage you that Jesus, he came because he's for you. To represent you. And yes, to open up the gates to his kingdom. The message, repent and believe that John was preaching, that message is for you and for me. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you that Jesus, he doesn't demand you to do so but he has proven his love for you and he welcomes you to trust in him. Such a contrast between Jesus' treatment of the crowd and the Pharisees' treatment of the crowd in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll see it unfold throughout the weeks to come. If you're here, though, and you're a follower of Jesus, and again, you know you've got that that area of, of sin that you're struggling with, and maybe you're not seeing a lot of progress there, again, and there's shame and guilt over that, I just want to encourage you to confess that and to turn to Christ, because he's not, he's not standing next to the Father or seated at the right hand of the Father right now, thinking, wow, I can't believe they blew it. I can't believe they're still struggling with that. No, he's standing there saying, I stand with you and for you. And yes, I know your struggle. But I've, I've, I've thrown open the gates of heaven for you. So confess your sin and repent. Right? Embrace that poverty of spirit. and Turn to me. Maybe that's a glitch in your spiritual growth, is just your willingness to just acknowledge, I need forgiveness for that. And Jesus, by standing with us, he actually removes our shame and our guilt through his death and resurrection. Well, Jesus was baptized. He was baptized as the launching of his messianic mission. He was baptized as the launching of his messianic mission. This is where it all starts. And as it starts, it it certainly wasn't just any baptism, okay? So we pick it up in verse 16, and here, you know, Jesus has told John, okay, allow it for now. This is going to fulfill all righteousness, okay? So it's go time. So verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, or right when he came up from the water is the idea. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming down on him. Let's pause there in verse 16. So Jesus, Jesus is baptized. He's immersed in the Jordan River. As he comes out of the water, immediately, Jesus has a vision of the heavens opening and he sees into the throne room of God. The idea, of of course, is picked up in Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, the, the statement of the heavens being opened and that glimpses, gives us a glimpse of the throne room of God. Well, when Jesus sees heaven, what does he see? He sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming down on him. Now, why like a dove? There's a possibility that this connects to Genesis 1 verse 2, where the Spirit of God is described as hovering over the waters in creation. That verb for hovering is used in another place in the Old Testament to refer to like nesting. And so some Jewish scholars in the first century thought that the Spirit was like a dove and that it nested over the waters. That's kind of the the verbal link there. The idea may be that the Spirit of God in creation, right, uh, does that, that hovering work. And so here as Jesus sees the Spirit of God, he sees it in the visionary format like a dove coming down on him. What's the point? Well, the point is the Spirit of God comes in unity with Jesus the Son and with uh, affirmation of the mission. It's, it's like the Spirit is approving of the mission and is on the mission with the Son, But it doesn't stop with the Spirit. Watch verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus the Son is baptized. As he's baptized, the Spirit descends in a visionary form. He sees the Spirit of God descending on him. And then he hears from heaven the voice of the Father. And what does the Father say? The Father says, This is my beloved Son. That's likely a reference or quotation from Psalm 2. Verse 7, where the Messiah is referred to as the Son. And then he says, with whom I am well pleased. That phrasing comes from Isaiah 42 and verse 1. And there's two significant truths that are are, uh, encapsulated there in that statement by the Father. Okay? The first is that Jesus is the divine son, the Messiah of Psalm 2, who does what? Who brings the authority of God to earth, who brings rescue for those who will turn to him, and who judges the nations. The Messiah son of Psalm 2 is the one that you're looking for, right? The rescuer, the divine son, the one who's going to get it done, who will rule the nations with that iron scepter. Absolutely. But then he's also, in Isaiah 42, the one who is well-pleasing to the Lord, the well-pleasing servant. The servant who, in Isaiah, suffers for his people to rescue them. He's the humble servant. And so really, as the Father speaks, we have this this juxtaposition of Jesus being the divine Son, the glorious divine Son, but also the humble servant. Now, when it happens, what does that mean? It means at this opening ceremony for the Messiah's ministry, we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in absolute unity advancing the mission of rescuing sinners. It's beautiful. It's an important reminder to us that the mission of redemption is not merely the mission of Jesus the Son, but it is the mission of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen, brothers and sisters, don't be theologically lazy, right? There's something for us to see here about the nature of the Trinity, that God as Father, Son, and Spirit uh, together in unity is working and has worked to redeem sinners. You need to know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have skin in the game for you. The Father sending the Son. The Son taking on flesh and suffering and dying in our place and rising from the dead. The Spirit being sent by the Father and Son to grant us spiritual life and to lead us in righteousness. Yes, the Father, Son, and Spirit work together in the work of salvation. In absolute unity. So don't be theologically lazy about it. Worship God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And praise the Father, and praise the Son, and praise the Spirit for His work of salvation. Of course, it's not just about the Trinity, though. There's emphasis here on Jesus and His role, that Jesus is the divine Son, worthy of worship and, yes, allegiance. And He's the humble servant, the one who came to die. So it turns out this This uh, glimpse into heaven and this kind of trinity moment here, the baptism, it it is all about authority on the one hand. Jesus is the divine son. And guess what? Jesus has that authority. Now listen, this is where it gets tough for us because when we talk about Jesus' authority, we have to ask the question, are we submitting to him as authority? That is a scandalous sentence in our society. To submit to anyone is not really looked upon with favor. But do we realize that Jesus is the divine son. Who has the authority of the Messiah from Psalm 2. Who does rule the nations. And will rule the nations. And therefore. Rightly we are called to obey him. To submit to him. There's no way of getting around it. If we're going to adopt the kingdom agenda. Like we talked about earlier. It means we have to surrender what we want. And we have to submit to his will. And. The very nature of submission means acknowledging that Jesus' authority is legitimate. I don't know if you've ever gotten pulled over for speeding. I never have. I've read about people that's happened to. As I've read about it, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a selfishness in that where you think, oh, these, oh, you know, and, you, well, they, I, and there's all the excuses and all the reasons. But ultimately, it's in your best interest to submit, right? And pay the ticket. Put in the time, right? Sometimes with Jesus, it's the same thing, though. He's exercising his authority as Lord and calling us to follow him and to obey him. And we want to do our own thing. We want to go another way. We see it differently. And at the end of the day, our best decision is to recognize he is the divine son worthy of our allegiance and submission. If the father says, this is my beloved son, he acknowledges his status, then we should too. Again, you might ask the question, where do I need to grow in in obedience to the Son today? This is not just about authority, though. It's also about humility. And Jesus shows humility. He shows it by taking on flesh, period. But here he shows humility by submitting to baptism that he doesn't really need, but he does it, right? To show that, again, that, that agreement with John's message and to show his identification with us as sinners. If the second person of the Trinity who has eternally existed, the agent of creation, okay, the Lord over all lords and king over all kings can humble himself in in loving service to others. Brothers and sisters, what is our problem? Because of our sin, we hesitate to humble ourselves and to love and serve others. And so I think in Jesus, we see here the the model and example for what we are called to in, in loving and serving others. Jesus demonstrates his humility here in his baptism. And we just have to ask the question, am I Christ-like in humility? Am I Christ-like in my loving service of others? Or in my sphere of influence, is it my way or the highway? Am I going to make demands and throw fits when I don't get what I want? Maybe they're grown-up fits, but they're still fits. Am I going to punish others? for not behaving or doing what I want? Am I going to show genuine care for others? Some of us, frankly, we claim the name of Jesus, but in our lives, we don't actually live like him very much. This is about authority. This is about humility. This is also about atonement. Jesus, identifying with sinners, sets us up to understand his death as the substitutionary sacrifice for us. Jesus facilitates atonement. And again, this is the theme that's introduced here in the opening ceremony of his ministry. I think Matthew's concern is, have you believed? Do you believe in Jesus, the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead? That's not all, though, that's going on. Again, watch what the Father says here. As the Spirit descends, Jesus has been baptized. The Father says, this is my, he doesn't just say my son. What does he say? My beloved son. He doesn't just say with whom I am pleased. He says with whom I am well pleased. The scriptural links to Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, notwithstanding, right? Those links, I actually think they, they underline this aspect that the father is not only pleased with the son, but the father loves the son and has loved the son for eternity. And when we are connected by faith to Jesus, we can say that the father loves and is pleased with us. Think about that for just a moment. Sometimes we work so hard to earn the approval of others, whether it's a parent, a friend, could be a coworker, worker whoever it might be. But just think about that, that if you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you are a, a citizen of his kingdom, the father is pleased with you because he's pleased with Jesus. He's not pleased with us because we've earned it. He's not pleased with us because we've cleaned up our act. He's not pleased with us because we have a perfect track record or whatever else. He's pleased with us because he's pleased with the Son. That's why the message is so simple. Repent and believe, right? We're not earning status with God. We're being given status with God through the beloved Son. Again, this addresses the issue of our guilt and our shame. But my friend John Owen said, The great satisfaction of the soul of God, wherein he rests and delights, consists in love to Christ as incarnate. It's it's love. He's the beloved son. Which I think begs the next question. Do we love him? If the father loves the son, and if the father is pleased with the son, it follows that you and I, as followers of the son we should love the Son. If the Son is truly lovely and beautiful and glorious, and if the Son is truly pleasing to God in that He reveals incarnate what a a life-lived, glorifying God looks like, then it follows that you and I, as followers of Jesus, that we should love Him, we should value Him, and we should be pleased by Him. We should rejoice in Him. We should be satisfied in Him. I think sometimes we just sell ourselves short on this side of it. And rightly so. We focus on the doctrinal side of things and we should and we must. But as we focus on that, don't forget the point of the teaching of the Bible is not to give you information about Jesus. It's to fuel love for Jesus. And when the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, this is written down for us, recorded by the Spirit of God in Matthew. Uh, it's, It's written down and recorded for us to impact us. To say, look at Jesus, love him, follow him, trust him. Sometimes I just think maybe we've, we've, you know, sterilized Jesus too much. We flattened him out and and just made him, uh, you know, a a figment of intellectual curiosity and not a 3D high definition incarnate second person of the Trinity who deserves to be loved, be worshipped, and followed. I think you have to ask the question this morning, do I love Jesus? Do I value him? Do I see him as lovely? Do I pursue him? You know, what we love, we pursue, don't we? We chase after it. The fact is, Jesus is lovely. And I think we have to ask, do I love Jesus? Does my life demonstrate that I love Jesus? That love for Jesus doesn't earn us God's favor. It's actually a result of God's favor. But man, it's the question. Now, we can't talk about Jesus' baptism without talking about baptism in general. And in the Gospel of Matthew, as we we go, I'm going to skip to the end here, right? When we get to the end, Matthew 28, Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make other disciples. And when you make other disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not a mistake. You have the Trinity referenced in Matthew 3. You have the Trinity referenced there in the, uh, the, the commissioning of the church in Matthew 28. But as Jesus commands us to baptize new followers, he does so as one who was baptized. This is actually pretty cool. Because baptism is that, it's interesting in that it's this, it's this event in uh, the life of a believer, usually early on in their faith, that says, I am connected to Jesus. But when we are baptized, we're not just saying, I've put my faith in Jesus, who died for my sins and rose from the dead. We're saying, I'm following Jesus, who himself was baptized. Now, the idea of a Christian who wasn't baptized is weird to the New Testament. It's unusual. It's, it shouldn't really be a thing. And even all the more so because Jesus himself models for us response to the message and baptism. Often we object to being baptized for various reasons. We might object to being baptized because it's a public proclamation of our faith and we don't want to go public with our faith. Of course, that cuts right to the heart of the issue, doesn't it? we just got to be known as a follower of Jesus and there's, there's no way to hide it. And if we want to hide it, there's maybe a question as to whether or not we genuinely love him. Sometimes people object to baptism because we have a genuine fear of water, which we can work around, right? We've got workarounds for that. They have a fear of public speaking. In our tradition, we usually have the person baptized share their testimony when they're baptized, but you don't have to do that. I, I, sometimes I'll read somebody's testimony, or we just do a little short summary for them. So fear of public speaking, don't sweat it. You're not there to give a sermon. We can get that done. Sometimes we... We hesitate to be baptized because we think it's for advanced Christianity. Of course, when we read the basic uh, record in Acts, it's not for advanced Christianity. People come to faith in Jesus, and then they're baptized, which matches exactly what we see in Matthew 28. I might just add, if baptism is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you and me. And when he says, make disciples and baptize them, there's just an open call there. It says, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to follow me and you follow me with baptism and everything that it pictures. If you have not been baptized and you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, I would love to baptize you. <laughs> I mean, that's we're here to do it, right? But it's something that you need to consider and just ask the question, if I've trusted in Christ, why won't I trust him in this? If it's good enough for Jesus, I think it's good enough for you and for me. At the end of the day, we learned this morning that that Jesus is the He's the the divine Son and the humble servant who fulfills all righteousness. He's the divine Son and the humble servant who fulfills all righteousness. And his baptism is the sneak preview of what is to come, of his identification with sinners, of his fulfillment of the Old Testament, and ultimately of his dying on the cross for our sin and rising from the dead. This is not just the work of the Son, it's the work of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's kind of, I think, a neat preview for all the good stuff that we're going to be learning in the Gospel of Matthew as we move forward. Why should you care? Well, because as a follower of Jesus, not only was he baptized for your benefit, but it teaches us crucially about his authority as the divine son and of his humility as the suffering servant. And as followers of Jesus, we just need to ask, am I submitting to him and am I living like him? So would you please pray with me, and we'll ask God to help us respond in faith. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for um, the, the scriptural background here with Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Lord, we thank you for what it meant that you were baptized in agreement with John the baptizer's message. Lord, we thank you that the kingdom of heaven has come near. We thank you that the call to repent and believe is a call based on your work as the Messiah. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are willing to identify with us as sinners. Lord, we thank you that by faith in you, our shame and guilt is removed. We thank you that we should rightly humble ourselves and submit to your authority and live with faith-driven obedience. And Lord, we thank you that you lead us by modeling humility, what it looks like to lovingly serve others. We pray that you would help us to follow you, Lord Jesus, to respond in faith. We pray that you would help us to obey. We pray that you would help us to to be humble in our attitude, both towards you and towards others. And Lord, in all of this, we pray that you would be glorified. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your work of salvation. In Jesus, we thank you for being the divine Son, with all the authority that that entails, but also for being the humble servant who died for our sins and rose from the dead. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.